there's so many layers to grief. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it was an extended illness and the anticipatory grief, they've been working on it for years, depending on what the disease trajectory is. But then you have folks that something abrupt happened two weeks ago and mom's only been on hospice for two weeks with a terminal diagnosis. So everybody's at a different stage, phase, characteristic, style of grief. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Hello, hello, everyone. Today's guest is Helen Bauer. Helen is a registered nurse with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. She has worked in nursing for over 30 years, specializing in hospice and end-of-life care for over 10 years. She is a certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse with a background in compliance and consulting. As owner of the Heart of Hospice, Hospice, LLC, she provides end-of-life education and consulting services. Helen's passion for quality of -of end-of-life care can be heard on the Heart of Hospice podcast in discussions on end-of-life care, hospice philosophy, advanced care planning, and grief. For anyone interested in any of these topics, I highly recommend that you check out the Heart of Hospice podcast because the discussions they have on there are fantastic. Helen, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to get to talk with you today. (laughs) I'm excited too. (laughs) And you may may hear happy squeals and that's okay because that's just my excitement peeking through. That's Um, great. (laughs) (laughs) I love your passion and the work that you're doing in the end of life groups, end of life and group space. But before we get started, before we go on further, tell our listeners where they can find you. Well, you can find us 24-7 at theheartofhospice.com. And we've got tons of resources there. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast there. And all of our archived episodes, there are over 400 episodes now. The podcast has been around for a while. Um, we're, the podcast is also available on Spotify, all the the typical platforms where you can listen to a podcast. So we're, it's pretty easy to find Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the, the regular social media sites. Wonderful. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. So we talked a little bit about your passion of end of life and hospice. How did you get started on your hospice journey? You know, it's it wasn't one of those Mother Teresa, I feel called stories. I had been a stay-at-home mom with my kids. And when they got older, it was time for me to go back to work to a full-time job. And I had a friend that said, oh, I work with this great team Uh, you should come and work. We have an opening. And I said, you know, what is it? What kind of nursing? And she said, oh, it's hospice. And in my head, I thought nursing is nursing is nursing. And of course, that's 
100% completely not true. And I went in and got the job, an amazing interdisciplinary group of people. But the first day that I was sent out to do what we call a ride along, where I rode with another nurse, the patient died during the visit while we were there in the home. And I had actually never experienced that before. And it was an incredibly moving moment for me. And I watched this nurse, a very seasoned, empathic LVN, work with this family and guide the, the patient's uh, son and his wife through this horrific grief experience. The son was an only child. Wow. And the mother had been living in their home for over 10 years. Um, they She had Alzheimer's. Oh, okay. And they had been caring for her. And I watched the daughter-in-law crawl into the bed and hold this woman as she died. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. It's one of those vivid, intense memories that I keep. And ever since then, I just could not see myself doing any other type of nursing. It sort of grabbed me. I've had jobs, uh -huh. but I remember leaving that day and thinking, I'm going to work out the rest of my career in this industry. That's amazing. And, and they sent me home at the end of that visit because it's, you know, it's horribly overwhelming and intense and it takes a while to sort of decompress. Mm-hmm. So for my first patient contact, you know, and I had been a nurse for a very long time when that happened, but I had never been involved in a patient death in the home. So it was really a reach out and grab you moment. Yes. Had you been involved with patients' deaths in the hospital or in other settings? Only once, only once. So I did most of my nursing in community-based care, community-based industries like home health, home infusion therapy. And the goal of working with patients like that is to get them up on their feet, get them healthy, get them rehabbed, strengthened, and then you turn them loose. Mm -hmm. I only had a couple of years in the hospital training when I was a very young nurse, very first starting out, my first job. And I think maybe there was one death, but it was very clinical and there was a code team that took it over. There was no chaplain, no social worker, you know, there was not an interdisciplinary team and the death was sudden. It okay. was unanticipated. So I really had never seen anything like that, which I guess you would think is odd because I was up in my forties when mm -hmm. I saw my first patient death and began working in hospice. Wow. Um, how did that, like, I know it started you on this path on your new, like, new career. How did it affect you personally? I, I began to realize the end of the continuum of nursing. You know, we have labor and delivery and we have pediatrics and then we have family medicine and then geriatrics. And I had worked years in geriatrics in home health. And then to see 
sort of the culmination and the closing of all of those stages of life. Mm-hmm. It it sort of made things seem full circle for me. And I was impacted greatly by the team of people that I work with. Interdisciplinary teams for hospice include nurses, physicians, social workers, spiritual counselors or chaplains, Mm -hmm. all sorts of therapies, um, volunteers. And I found my spiritual life being nurtured and supported because that's what inner, you know, that's what hospice teams do. Yeah. When someone is having a bad day, the rest of the team holds you up and keeps you going. And then you do it for them when, when it comes their turn. Mm -hmm. And I found myself more accepting of my own spirituality and of others, other people's spirituality, patients and their caregivers. And I think it made me more reflective and Mm open-minded. Yeah. So you said that you were sent home after that experience. When did you go back to work? Oh, the next day. The next day. Oh, okay. The next day. My, my boss, who was my first hospice mentor, a seasoned nurse and could, she was mother hospice, you know, she was wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, she came to the home and worked that visit, that death and took care of the family, showing me the responsibilities of an RN here in Texas and what we're you know, supposed to do, mm-hmm. um, providing grief support and bereavement, doing all the things that uh, hospice teams do when there's a death. And then she just said, okay, so this is what it looks like today. You go home for the rest of the day. And then I was back at it the next day. She just wanted, I think, to give me some space to digest and absorb yeah. what I had seen and gone through. And maybe a chance to say, come in the next day and say, you guys are crazy. I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, I think she, I think it was a very wise thing to do as a, a supervisor and a mm. mentor. Yeah. To realize that, that I might need just a minute to take a deep breath. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Like an amazing experience all around. It was, I, I can picture the home and the family and everything, everything. I remember the patient's name, which is unusual, you know, through the years as a nurse, you, you can't possibly remember all the patients, but that okay. particular event had a, a huge impact on me. That's incredible. So you mentioned that you hadn't experienced death like that before. Have you since? Oh, numerous times, numerous times. And they don't all look like that, you know, where the family's gathered and people are close and people are comfortable with it. You know, family members get in the bed and cuddle and cradle and and have physical contact. Not all deaths are like that. You know, it depends on the life that was lived and the relationships that were lived as well. But I've seen numerous deaths. Um, Never been frightened really by any of them. Mm -hmm. There's a certain strength that comes with working inside a hospice team because you know what your purpose is. 
and people rely on us. And so it's very empowering to know I have something to share when I get in there and I can watch this and I can help them do this. And what you know as a hospice nurse is as scared as we are or might be in a situation where there's someone dying, that family has it much worse. They're not just frightened because there's something strange going on and they don't understand it. They're frightened and sad and grieving and stricken Mm -hmm. and a lot of times exhausted as well. So yeah, yeah, I've seen it, seen it so many times and each one I was able to learn from that family and that patient. Wow. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. It is. And it's, it's like, like grief. Every experience is different and every Um, relationship, every perspective on death and grief. It's different for every individual, for every family, for every situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a hospice nurse, you have to learn pretty quickly when you walk into a home for a family that you've never met and there are 15 grieving family members or friends standing there and you've never met this patient, you have to learn quickly how to sort of speak the language of their grief. If they are lighthearted and talking and you know, physically interacting and touching the body, then you learn this is their comfortable zone for their grief. This is how they express. And so you, you set yourself in that space. But if the tone is much different, you've got 10 family members and they're arguing or they're distant from each other, or they're just very, very quiet, or they have distanced themselves from the body you know, no physical touching, or they don't want to be in the room, you learn to modify what you say and how you act to stay comfortable with them. Mm. So how do you, how long does it take to modify your responses, like to judge where they're at and how they work with their grief or how they, how they manage their, their grief or not. Um, And knowing how like how much time does it take to understand them and also pick out the right tools to match where they're at well unfortunately when you go into a patient's home you have to think on your feet right then Mm -hmm. and and it's a skill that you develop you know having mentors and watching social workers and chaplains as they work with families and, and console, because those are our psychosocial experts, right? Yeah. Um, I, I learned a ton by watching the social workers and the bereavement counselors and the chaplains that we had. But when you go into a home, say it's the middle of the night, right? Because deaths don't always occur, occur nine to five. Mm-hmm. You really think on your feet very quickly because Patients and their families do not have the luxury of our learning curve. We have to go in there. We have to be able to assess. There's a mother, a father, you know, a brother, a sister. There are children. There are teenagers. um, There are caregivers. There are same-sex partners. And you have to 
be able to sort of suss that out very quickly. And I learned, I had a, not a shtick, I had a habit of a certain style that, a, a way of communicating when I would come in. And the first thing I would say is, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Um, and I'm sure I said stupid stuff along the way as I was learning, right? Because you mm -hmm. can't, you can't get everything right for every single caregiver that you come across, but we do yeah. try. And then I would say, I would introduce myself and say what I was there for. And I said, I'd like to know who's here with you. So if you'll just tell me what your name is and what your relationship is to so-and-so, John. Mm -hmm. And just to get a quick idea of who I was dealing with, sometimes you have people that are from outside the family or the caregiving units, like say a neighbor or a pastor or somebody, uh, a friend who just happened to be in the house when the death occurred and really didn't anticipate being there for that particular event. But it's really good to know who the decision makers were, who the next of kin were, you know, so there's some practical pieces to it, but also be able to, as you interact with them, see what their demeanor is. Uh, Are they yeah. able to interact with you much? Yes. And it's a way of sort of figuring out, well, what kind of griever is this? Is this a person who's going to be emotive and once um, is welcoming of physical touch, a handhold or a hug? Or is this somebody who's about the business? Um, is this a sheepdog? somebody who's been a protector and a caregiver for a long time. And it's really just a way of figuring out their style of grief, mm -hmm. but it, it takes a while. And I'm sure I said all the stupid stuff, you know, everybody, every healthcare practitioner goes through that. It's so hard to know what to say. When we go in and we're talking with a family, a lot of times we are truly talking to people we have never met before. They don't know us. And there's so many layers to guilt. Uh, sorry, let me correct that. There's so many layers to grief. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it was an extended illness. And the anticipatory grief, they've been working on it for years, depending on what the disease trajectory is. But then you have folks that something abrupt happened two weeks ago, and mom's only been on hospice for two weeks with a terminal diagnosis. So everybody's at a different stage, phase, characteristic, style of grief. And, and a lot of times there's not enough room, space, and time to really delve into that. When you're a nurse making a visit in the middle of the night when a patient's died. Yeah. Best case scenario, you have your chaplain, you have your bereavement coordinator, they're providing that grief support you know, that's really when it's, you get the full effect of the interdisciplinary team, mm -hmm. but at, you know, two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, that may or may not always happen. Right. Yeah. Um, but then with the dis interdisciplinary team, you follow up with the patients and their families, correct? Yes. We are required by regulation to provide bereavement care if the family is accepting of it for up to 13 months after a patient dies on the hospice service. Um, and that can take all kinds of different forms. We are responsible for assessing what their bereavement risk is. So basically what their level of grief, style of grief will be, will they need more support or less? Are there 
um, young children in a home that would need age-appropriate materials? Is there a mm-hmm. spouse with dementia? You know, are the caregivers remote caregivers? So it, it ends up being um, a bereavement plan of care that includes things like letters and newsletters, phone calls, memorial services that an agency would have for to honor all the patients that have died in the past year or so. Um, okay. Yeah, so the bereavement care is definitely there. What if um, when the death happens, often there are so many logistical details to deal with that people don't have resources. Like they don't, they just don't have the mental, spiritual, emotional capacity to even look at their grief yet because there's so much in the way of paperwork, logistics, removing medical equipment, what to do with how to notify people. Like, okay, now what? Right. So for people, I imagine that some people may not be ready for those bereavement care services right after the death. So how does that work? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's more at that time of death when the, especially when their loved one is still in the home before a funeral home takes them or, you know, however the disposition of the body is arranged for. I think people are just in shock and disbelief. You're sort of on hold while you process okay, we have to call for the equipment to be picked up and we have to notify the funeral home. And there are a lot of business pieces that have to be taken care of or at least planned for pretty quickly. So Mm -hmm. some of the grieving gets pushed aside for a while. And some people are more comfortable in that space anyway, because that's normal. Making decisions, taking care of business, um, making sure we have what we need, taking care of bills or turning services off. That makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. Having your mother lying in a bed, no longer breathing with a heartbeat feels foreign and strange and unfamiliar. So if I can manage the busyness of things for a little bit longer, then when the body is removed from the home, and the equipment's cleared and the hospice team leaves, that's when I really think the grief work starts. Once the busyness of things is over with. So typically bereavement care, the first bereavement call is made a few days after. Okay. We provide grief support at the house when the death has occurred. But we don't immediately begin, you know, we, it's based on what are the needs right then. And we don't we don't go into any deep grief counseling unless there's complicated grief where there's an urgent need. Okay. What are some situations of complicated grief? Well, you know, family dynamics are everything. And if there has been a dysfunctional relationship between the patient, the person who's died, and anybody in the family. If it was a complicated relationship, um, if there's been addictive behaviors or even abuse, um, 
I mean, I've seen caregivers taking care of their abusers. And so that can complicate grief. If patients have been incarcerated and estranged from family members and even just distance, um, people have kids, you know, multiple kids that have lived out of state and haven't been involved in a person's care and then come home to find the situation very intense. And then the, the family member dies, you're dealing with the guilt and maybe some resentment of other family members who were very involved in the care. And that can get complicated. Um, I think the age of the patient can complicate things as well, because a lot of times we shield our kids, our teenagers, our adolescents from the death and dying experience. Mm. And we have so medicalized death in the U.S., that I think a lot of adults don't know how to handle it either. And I think that complicates grief as well. Yeah. So a lot of different scenarios can really complicate grief. And then you get into if there's any history of mental illness, um, just poor coping skills, addictive behaviors, all sorts of things. And we see, you know, across the the spectrum in mm-hmm. hospice. Yeah. And you see across the spectrum in age of your patients too, right? We do. We do. Only about 2% of hospice patients are pediatrics, which is nice, right? Most of our patients are older, especially with the baby boomers aging into this this, uh, stage in their lives where they might struggle with chronic and then serious illness. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of our patients are geriatric Medicare age. 65 and older. We do have younger people. And yeah, that does complicate it because like for a child to die before a parent, that seems like an unnatural loss. Uh It's, it doesn't match the progression of what we, our our expectations of life and death in our heads. Right. It's, it's not supposed to happen that way. So yes, that does complicate it oftentimes. I think a lot of our perspective of death and life comes from how we see it, like our, how we handle it or not, how we view it or not. Like if we're welcoming of it or if we're scared of it, we avoid it. I think it comes from our perspective. Is it a natural thing that happens for everyone? Or is it not supposed to, quote, not supposed to be that way? Right. I I think in Western culture, because we have made it a clinical event, um, grandma goes off to the hospital. She's very, very sick and she dies there. And the next time you see her, she's in a casket. Mm -hmm. We have shielded ourselves, insulated ourselves and I think we've, we have ill-equipped ourselves, even people my age, we have distanced ourselves. So how do we teach the next generations how to be comfortable with death and how to sit in that space with somebody who's dying, you know, much less take care of them, you know, Mm -hmm. when you can ship them out and let somebody else take care of them. But I, I think we have created this distance 
a separation from it because it's hard to manage. Mm -hmm. It's, it's sad and there's work to be done. That's why they have the term grief work. Yeah. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think modern medicine, our hospitals, we made it so nice and sterilized, right? We just, it's in another space and we don't have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that you have had personal hospice experiences. Tell us about those. I have had two personal hospice experiences. One was a few years ago with a family friend of my husband's. And it was um, one of those lesson learned experience because I found myself as her medical power of attorney legally without having ever had a discussion with her about her health care or her end of life wishes. Mm. She had had a will made up and had a medical power of attorney document drawn up by a lawyer and had given us a packet years before and just said, you know, this is my will, etc. And I never looked th through it, never looked at it. And she'd been undergoing cancer treatment. My mother-in-law had been helping her some and the treatment hadn't been going well at all. And she became septic, ended up in the emergency room and they called and said, you're it. She can't make her own decisions. She was horribly confused at that point. And so it was this huge scramble to figure everything out. Mm. And she died on hospice. She had what we would consider a good death. My husband was there with her. She was in a hospice facility. Um, oddly enough, it was the day that Hurricane Harvey made landfall here on the Gulf Coast. So the entire city was shut down and ringed by water. Um, I could not, I could not get there. Yeah, it was very strange. Um, and I had a lot of guilt interspersed in my grief because I felt as a hospice professional, why in the world would I never have had those conversations with her? Mm, yeah. You know, it was do as I do, do as I say, not as I do. Uh-huh. And and I felt like I had really let her down. Yeah. And I wondered what it was about my relationship with her that she couldn't get comfortable enough with me to have those conversations. And consequently, through her talking with her friends, I found out that they dragged her to the attorney to have her will made. She never discussed end of life. She did not want to talk about any of it. Um so I made a lot of decisions flying blind and just tried to honor her and do, make decisions about her care based on the way she lived her life okay. and what I knew about her. Uh -huh. yeah. So I wouldn't say that I had complicated grief, but I, I would say that I had some guilt and some regret that's mixed in. And uh, she was a neat lady. Her name was Betty. Her name was Betty. Nice. And then my second hospice experience was actually during the pandemic. It's only been a little over a year. Um, my father-in-law um, was very sick with end-stage Alzheimer's and was on hospice for about 
I don't know, four or five months. And my husband was one of his primary caregivers along with my mother-in-law. And his ability to communicate um, was completely gone. And he had a stroke and died about 11 days later on hospice. Great care, great experience. But it was a different perspective because this was somebody in my immediate family. And I watched my mother-in-law and my husband and my children grieve. And it was very different. Yeah. Very different, very different. And I learned how difficult it is for a hospice nurse because we are so, nurses are bossy anyway, (laughs) but hospice nurses, you know, this is what I, this is what I do. This is how I think I, you know, I've done this for so long and, you know, you, you try to sit back and let other people drive the bus because it, it was my mother-in-law's lifelong partner. I think they'd been married for 60 years and she needed to be able to work through what was happening in her own way. Yeah. And I had to stifle my mouth several times when they're, I'm like, Oh, I know what you should be doing. (laughs) And really what they needed was to be able to work through the situation, his death and the dying process and their grief in their own way, Mm -hmm. in their own way. So in, in a lot of ways, it was a very good lesson. I think every hospice professional should have the benefit of some sort of personal grief experience. I think it changes your perspective. It it lets you understand what people are going through. Yeah. Yeah. How was it different? Like, how did you find the balance between being the hospice nurse and having the, being the professional hospice nurse and also being a member of the family? I tried to empower my husband as much as possible because he's not in the healthcare field at all. None of my husband's family is. And I let them know what I know would work. And then I really just tried to step back and I would say, you're doing great. You got this. And if there was something they didn't understand, I would say, well, this is what I see, you know, in my experience. Mm -hmm. But because he had a hospice team, I would tell them it would be a good idea for you to call the hospice nurse, talk to the social worker about this. You know, I wasn't their grief counselor. I I wasn't their social worker. That wasn't my place there. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them also to have confidence in their hospice team. They got great care. And so I would empower them, you know, give them a call. Be sure to share this with the hospice nurse. She might have some feedback for you. And, um, I saw the mistakes they made, not the family, the hospice team. And I learned from that myself. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a very interesting perspective. It's really difficult when you've been nursing for so long to turn that off and just be the daughter-in-law. Yeah. I because, found it very difficult. Yeah. My mom's a nurse too. And that's like, that's part of your your identity, your being, your personality as a nurse is always thinking on your feet, fixing the problems, solving. Right. right. Solving things. 
and to right. sit back and let things and wait and not do anything just just be there i can imagine yes. that would be super difficult well and to watch them have to wait was very difficult because the minute he stopped swallowing after he had the stroke we all knew it wasn't just a matter of days mm-hmm. but to watch them having to watch and do that was so difficult was so difficult they never left him alone he always had somebody there just so he would know there was someone there oh that's amazing yeah yeah the and the the grandchildren came in one by one you know spent a little bit of time with him and it really was as a caregiving village group of people they were amazing they were simply amazing yeah his name was charles I, I think there's so much Yay. power in remembering people through their names. Um, and my children, his grandchildren called him Papa. Yeah. Papa Charles. Yeah. And he was awesome. A very, very quiet man. Uh-huh. And uh, when he began to change, I watched the maturity of my children kick in when they realized that he was going to die from this, that he was changing who he was. Mm-hmm. his personality and how he interacted with them. There was one day in particular, we had gone to the lake for a family vacation and my in-laws had come to celebrate a birthday and my father-in-law fell that day. And my girls were, you know, mid twenties, both of them. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the two of them went out and sat on the dock, everybody had left, you know, it was just my, my little family. And I have a photograph that I took of them, the two of them sitting there with their feet hanging over the edge of the dock, looking out at the water when the sun went down. And one by one, the men in my family came to sit with them. And I have this photograph of the two girls sitting on the edge of the dock and their dad, my husband standing there with them, And one of my daughter's boyfriends, now her husband, was also standing there. And my brother had come in and he sat on the edge of the dock with them. So it was their sheepdogs. And there was this realization, I think, for all of them that eventually we would lose Charles, that that death would happen. And I think it was that movement into adulthood for my children. But I, I remember I took the photograph because they were all facing away from me, right? Yeah, yeah. And all looking out over the water. But it was a very contemplative moment, reflective moment of who we were as a family and how this event was going to shape all of us. Was there grief in that moment too? Oh, yes. Yes. Because watching Charles fall, I saw him when he fell. His gait had changed and his mentation had changed. And I knew that the Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever it was at that point, he had had not been diagnosed with Alzheimer's specifically. 
I knew that's what was happening Mm -hmm. and that he was changing. And of course, I wasn't going to go to my kids and say, hey, I need to let you know that for the next 10 to 14 years, your grandfather is probably going to lose his ability to walk and he may not know who you are and he may get combative and confused. And then eventually he'll be bedridden and he won't be able to speak to you or swallow. You know, I've seen that with so many patients, how the disease moves. Mm -hmm. But I think for my girls, it was just the thought that this person who had been ever present in their lives would one day be gone. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was more of being able to look at where he would be going and how that would look. I could, I could see that because I've worked with patients like that before. Right. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of conversations did you have with your girls? I talked to them very openly and honestly. And although neither one of my girls is a worker inside healthcare. Neither Mm -hmm. one of them work in the medical community. One is a teacher and one is a firefighter. So they are on in their own unique ways, sheepdog, protective. Um, And they're both very open about communicating with me. So we talked about, I told them what it would look like and they would ask questions. Well, you know, what will happen when we get to this point, what will, what, how will we take care of him? Where will he live? Mm. And so we talked about a lot of those things. I think a lot of people just want to know what to expect yeah. because it makes them feel as if they have a, a grasp, some sort of control over the situation. And of course you can only control so much, but if in your mind you feel strong like that, it's, it puts you in a more comfortable place. And mm-hmm. so for my girls, I think there was also some urgency to know I need to spend time with them now. Yeah. These are the these are the memories. This is the time to do this. And I don't want to miss this. Yeah. My younger daughter was pregnant with her first child, with her her baby. And um my father-in-law actually died on her birthday, on my daughter's birthday. Oh, wow. And then the baby was born a month later. And it was my father-in-law's first grandchild, a great-grandchild. And it grieved me that he missed that because uh-huh. he would have loved that. He would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just talking very openly. Uh-huh. And and if when they had had their fill of it, I, because as a hospice nurse, I can talk about this stuff all day if that's what you need to do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. It's like talking about grief, right, Jenny? You can talk about grief all day long. And yeah. so I could tell them however much they wanted. And when they were ready to disconnect and they had had their fill and all that they could hold, they would let me know. Awesome. They would say, okay, that's all I need to know for right now. And then we we would have the respect for each other for me to stop and for them to just take a deep breath, understand the information is given to help them cope and understand. And everybody just move forward. Mm-hmm. 
we just we had an open communication about it. It seemed the easiest way to do it. And that's the style, you know, when you talk about family dynamics, that's the style of communication that I've always had with my kids. That's amazing. Yeah, they're they're wonderfully open people. That's incredible. Not everybody has a family like that where the communication is so open and honest and respectful. Yes. And I think that does shape the grief so much people's communication styles, because that's definitely part of your family dynamics mm -hmm. for any, any kind of family group. And I think for us, the fact that we could move through the situation and the grief we felt as it happened and communicate about it. I know this is hard. We can do this. This is what you can expect. You know, what will happen when? How will we do this? And open and honest answers. So when it came to managing the grief after, we managed the grief the same way. Mm -hmm. If if you wanted to talk about Papa right then and you wanted to pull out the old photographs and talk about how he took you on the tractor when you were kids and fed you ice cream in the middle of the night, then we'll talk about all of that stuff. And when you need to take a deep breath and disconnect from that for a while, because it feels very heavy, then we'll step back and we'll talk about what we need from the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Just to lift out of it for a minute. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way of handling death and grief and all that goes with them. We were very blessed very blessed in the way things progressed and moved the way Charles moved through his disease and through his death. My, my husband is a very quiet, quiet man, mm -hmm. but that sheepdog caregiver kicked in. And so when it was time for him to take care of his dad, he was awesome. How did Charles contribute to the process of his death and and leaving a legacy for the family. When Charles began to decline and began having health problems, you know, he would fall, that sort of thing. He would always push through it. And my mother-in-law was a huge driving force behind that because she was his primary caregiver. They'd been married so long. And, and Charles never, ever complained. Never complained. Um. We avoided some of the big battles. One day he just gave up the car keys, which is, you know, for a lot of people who are who are ill with a serious illness, that's a huge bone of contention, mm -hmm. right? Are we going to take mom's keys away? He gave up his keys. I think there was some recognition that he was no longer safe to drive and he wasn't. So it was a smart move, yeah. but he was, he did as much as he could. He was at the center of every family event. And again, my mother-in-law was responsible for making sure that he was in the middle. He, we wheeled him in in his wheelchair. All the kids were there. All the grandkids were there. And he stayed immersed in the family culture for as long as we could do it. And, and even as we sat with him when he began to die, he was quiet. You know, it was... It was a calm, quiet death. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how he lived his life. He was a very quiet man. 
but definitely grounded in family. And so that's that's how he lived out his illness and lived through through the dying and then up to his death. Very family centered. Have you seen with other um, with patients that their style of dying is similar to the style that they lived? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You have these diehard rebels. You know, I I smoked a joint at Woodstock, you know, motorcycle riding. And and listen, they're going down in flames when they get ready to to die. And it's amazing to see people's personalities. And then you you see these people that have been very spiritual people, whether it's um, religious based or just spiritual. And they are so inquisitive about it. I want to talk with you about this. It's not just about the physical aspect of the dying. It's about the spiritual aspect of dying. Mm -hmm. And of course, anybody that's been fearful or they've lived a hard life, um, sometimes their approach to death is the same way. You know, you don't automatically become very wise about life and death and dying when you are diagnosed with a terminal illness. It doesn't work that way. Michael Landon does not come to the bedside. There's no white light. Della Reese is not <laughs> going to sing you a song. You know, it's not in the movie. It's not the way it is in the movies. Definitely yeah. not. Right. Um, and so I think it's however the life was lived. If, if atheists, you know, agnostics, non-theistic uh, believers, they just move in their own way and everybody approaches it on their own terms. I mean, some people go down kicking and screaming. If that's their personality, they're going like, hell yeah, bring it on. If you think you can kill me, go ahead. <laughs> and then you have these other people that are, I want my family and I need flowers and music and this is what I want. And, and they move through it with all this gentleness. I think for most people, it's a blend. Uh -huh. um, I think everybody's probably a little bit fearful just because there's so much unknown. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, it's definitely dying and the death is, is definitely a reflection of the lives. It's interesting to watch. That would, I haven't worked in hospice, so I don't have any of these cool experiences like you do, but I imagine um, I see that individuality come out in grief and I imagine it's similar. Like the way oh. they're just, each person has their own personality. And that's, I believe that's apparent in our births, in our deaths, how we grieve in every part of us. Yes. I, I see that all the time in hospice. And, you know, it's such a privilege to be able to walk alongside people. And you learn from everybody. And I'm mm -hmm. not just talking about how to take care of the next patient. I'm talking about learning as an individual and growing as a person, you know, spiritually, psychosocially, emotionally. And watching these people do this amazing stuff all the time, knowing that my turn will come. I will walk this with my mom. 
I might walk this with my husband, with my siblings, and then I will walk it for myself, whatever that's going to look like. Yeah. So we learn from every single human. We have a tendency to call them patients, but they are people. They are people before they were patients. They're not just a sum of medical jargon and diagnoses, right? It's another human being. So my humanity learns from theirs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to, to do this kind of work. I agree. (laughs) I agree. Thank you so much for sharing yourself and your humanity with us so that we can learn from you. Oh, it's, it's my privilege, my pleasure. You can tell it's such a a work of heart for me Mm -hmm. to work in hospice. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my stories with you. Uh, Before we close out, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I would say to anybody who is involved in a grief journey, and aren't we all these days involved in some <laughs> kind of grief journey, right? Whether it's yeah. political, social, global, personal, you know, I would say remember to give yourself space for your grief. It's okay. Sit with it, immerse in it if that's what you need to do. And then figure out what you need to get at the grocery store. <laughs> Lift up out of it. You know, give yourself some room to breathe. Give yourself some room to breathe in your grief and know that your style of grieving isn't wrong. It's just yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share your journey and your insights with us. This has been such an enriching and engaging experience. Um, So for our listeners who would like to learn more about you and about your story and about Heart of Hospice, tell us again where they can find you. They can find me at theheartofhospice.com. They can find all the podcasts there. There's a ton of resources there as well. Um, Some information to support anybody who is experiencing a hospice journey whether you're providing the care, um, because I consider myself on a hospice journey as a hospice nurse, or you're the one receiving the care as a, pota- uh, a patient, or you're a family caregiver to someone who, with a serious illness who's considering hospice care as well. So theheartofhospice.com. We also have a page on Facebook, The Heart of Hospice, and Instagram as well. And if they want to connect with me with any questions, my email is helen at theheartofhospice.com. Awesome. So you heard it from her. You heard it from Helen. If you have any questions regarding hospice, palliative care, or anything in the end of life field, go check out the Heart of Hospice website, podcast, and also reach out to Helen. She is a wealth of resources. It's been another amazing conversation here on Share Your Story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. Thank you listeners for tuning in and receiving these stories. If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. 
If you are struggling with grief and would like to make it more manageable, schedule a call through my website, grievingcoach.com, and I will give you one tool that you can implement today. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are and that we can turn grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story.